here to uh, minister the Word of God to us. I'm Adam Schenk, we've been uh, supporting him and his family in their mission work uh, for several years. Uh, he was serving in Chad, Africa, doing translation work, and um, because of uh, security reasons, uh, they've come back to the States in the past several years. He's been continuing uh, to do translation, vital, important work. Hopefully you're able to sit in the Sunday school hour to hear about that important work. Um, but he is uh, fairly local. Somebody asked me, where's the missionary from this morning? It's from North Lima. <laughs> <laughs> Some exotic area, um, but uh, no. But uh, it's it's really neat to see uh, just even the way in which the Lord is is uh, using so much of the digital technology uh, has been used for evil, but to see it being put to good use to translate the Word of God in languages of, of people and, and not having to be able to to travel uh, as much. And so uh, Adam is here. He's going to minister the Word of God uh, from First Peter chapter 4, which was already read in your hearing. So you can come along. Thank you, Matt. Yes, I do come from the exotic North Lima. <laughs> Not as exotic as that awesome new building. Lord willing, you will get... It is pretty crowded in here compared to Sunday school too, so... Not, uh, not trying to make you feel guilty at all, but um, I did, maybe just a little, I did explain all about our ministry in Sunday school and got to show some examples of software we use, so I'm not going to do that right now. We're going to turn instead of 1 Peter again, as it was read, I should say, but I'm going to read it again, 1 Peter 4, 7 through 12. I'll be reading today from the NIV, the 2011 version. So 1 Peter 4, 7-12, through 12, we'll be looking at living out Christ's victory in the church. God's Word says, The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray again. Father, we do indeed thank You for this Word. We thank You that You are the God of this Word. We pray You would work in our hearts, that You would draw us to Christ, that You would convict us of sin, and help us to leave here today living for You. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Now, if you Google the phrase, the end is near, you're going to see all kinds of cool stuff. So I did it. And the first thing on the list is this music video by a power metal band called Primal Fear. I, I listened to a little of it. It's not really my style, but uh, it's, it's pretty cool. You also see pictures of Homer Simpson holding up a prophetic sign saying, The end is near. 
And you'll see a Far Side comic strip portraying this shaggy-haired kind of prophetic guy holding this, uh, this sign, kind of like a doomsday prophet, and he's shouting, the end is near. And you'll also see things about you know, politics, political spoofs and parodies with that phrase. You'll see little mocking memes and silly pictures. And you'll see a bunch of books, actually, too, with the title or subtitle, The End is Near. Some of those books actually have nothing to do with the end of the world or the end of the age or, or, or something similar, but the end of maybe you know economics or the end of some other subject. But many of the books actually do have to do with the end of the world or the end times. And it goes without saying that there are a lot of different views on the end times, right? I'm sure if we all kind of started talking about our views here, we'd see there's a lot of differences. Now, on one side of the spectrum, regarding just our population, not Christians, there are people who mock at the idea of the end of the world or some kind of you know, cataclysmic turning point in the world. And then there are others, specifically people who write these books I just mentioned, that they really promise to unfold all the mysteries about the end of the world. And if you just buy their book, you will be enlightened too. And many of these people seem to be preoccupied with, with every headline in the news, you know, every little, every little new thing that comes out. Somehow they can tie it to a prophetic event in the Bible. These are people I call newspaper Christians. I do think we should read the paper and know what's going on, but somehow they, they always find that, that somehow something like Trump or China or Facebook or Bitcoin or NATO or artificial intelligence or the COVID-19 vaccination, it's in the Bible, and if you just know how to read it properly, you can find it and understand you know, that you'll, you'll be enlightened too, as long as you have their book to guide you through that. Well, obviously, the Bible does have much to say about the end. Our text today says the end of all things is near. But really, what I want to emphasize today is that the Bible has even more to say about how we are to live in light of that end. Right? I mean, we might not know all the details about the end times. I, if someone claims they do, you know, just stay away from them. We know, we know a good bit about the end. We know... Things revealed in Scripture, some clear, some not so clear. But what we know even more, I argue, is that how the Lord wants us to live in light of that end. And that's really what our text is about today. That's Peter's focus, actually, in chapter 4 of 1 Peter. So in 1 Peter 4, 1-6, Peter is calling Christians to understand their own suffering in light of Christ's suffering. He calls them to arm themselves with the same attitude of Christ because Christ Himself suffered and therefore He modeled an example for us. And so Peter exhorts us to live out Christ's victory over suffering in this unbelieving world in which we find ourselves. That's kind of like the essence of chapter 4, 1-6. through 6. But in our text today, Peter kind of shifts focus. He's speaking more to us as Christians and how we live out that victory in the church among believers, among our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially given the fact that the end of all things is near, as he says in verse 7. And so to understand this, today we're going to divide our text into four main sections, really five, but four points. We're going to see that Peter exhorts us in four ways. First, in verse 7, he exhorts us to think rightly. And then secondly, in verse 8, he exhorts us to love deeply. 
And third, in verse 9, he exhorts us to share cheerfully. And fourth, he exhorts us to serve faithfully in verse 10 and 11. And I'm going to repeat those as we go along. So in order to live out Christ's victory in the church, we need to think rightly, love deeply, share cheerfully, and serve faithfully. But before we start digging into those points, we really need to try to set the context and understand this, this phrase, the end of all things is near. Right there in verse 7. Now Peter's reason for saying that is very clear, I think, based on the context. He says that because he wants to shape our behavior in light of the fact that the end of all things is near. The end of all things is near is the basis then for these four exhortations in our text. But what does he mean though? The end of all things is near. Well first, just backing up a little, in verse 5 and 6, Peter's talking about the, the, the thought of death and judgment. So it's kind of like the theme in those verses there. And so even if society, because that's in the living, living Christ's victory out, in this unbelieving world is kind of the theme, I would say, of verse 1 through 6. So even in this unbelieving society that we live in, thinks that God's message, that the end and all this is irrelevant, God is still the world's judge. There is a final judgment. And so this warning here is about this coming judgment. But really this warning, the end of all things is near, is also a hopeful statement for the believer. Right? We're awaiting the end of all things, the final resurrection, the return of Christ. And so the phrase, the end of all things is near, is directly following the context of this impending judgment for all. So it's related to that, that idea, that context. But also I'd like to point out that the term here used near, is near, is actually a verb in the original Greek. And I think that's significant to note because it's actually, we're going to do a little grammar here, so don't get grammar phobia. It's in what's called the perfect tense. Past perfect. And so this just means it's a past action with present results or present consequences. So I could say in the past I ate pizza. That's just the past simple. Or I could say I have eaten pizza. Like if you ask me, are you hungry? No, I've already eaten pizza. That means I ate it in the past, but it has a present result, a consequence. That means I'm full. I'm not hungry. So that's the verb tense here. So we could say instead of the, ver- the end of all things is near, more literally, the end of all things has neared. That kind of sounds British. So we could say the end of all things has come near or the end of all things has approached. And so Peter's emphasis is not that the end is about to come near, like the future, or the end will come near, like the future, but that the end has already approached us. The end of all things has already come near. That still leaves us with a big fat question. What on earth does he mean? When did the end of all things come near? Well, first, we need to realize that this kind of talk didn't originate with Peter. And actually, this verb here is used throughout the Gospels in the same tense, the past perfect. John the Baptist, for example, he preached something similar when he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus said the same thing. He said, Repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And Jesus told His disciples in Matthew 10 to go and preach that the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then in Acts, Acts 2.17, Peter said, In the last days, 
And then he speaks about things being fulfilled right there in his day at Pentecost. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.11, he says, The end of the ages has come upon us. Or has arrived, you could translate that. So according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, the end of the ages has already arrived. Paul also, in Romans 12.13, he says, The night is far gone and the day is at hand. Or actually, it's the same verb there. The day has come near. The day has approached. And finally, James in James 5.8, he encourages his readers to be patient until the Lord's coming because the end has come near. Same verb. And there are actually other places in the New Testament as well. So how are we to understand this then? How do we understand these verses that seem to be talking about this impending, looming judgment, this end of all things, the end of the world, and the ushering in of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven has come near. How do we understand those together? Well, first, I think we need to realize that there are some Old Testament messianic prophecies that often link the coming of the Messiah to the end, or we could say to the final phase of God's plan. One good example is in Daniel 2, 44-45. In that context there... Speaking of four different empires in that statue, the text says, In the time of those kings, that's the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. Those are the four empires. So essentially what he's saying is, for the Messiah to come and set up his kingdom, sounds like the end has come upon those earthly kingdoms, because the eternal kingdom has been brought in and set up. And we do know that those four kingdoms are obviously destroyed, right? There's no Roman Empire today. But yet here we are, 2,000 years later, living out normal life. What do we make of this? Well, I think when the Holy Spirit revealed to the New Testament authors that Christ's kingdom was not like earthly kingdoms. It was not limited to a small sphere of land in the Middle East, but that it was a universal kingdom, as prophesied in Daniel, or that it was a mustard seed kingdom, we could say, that started very small and worked its way out to every tongue and tribe and nation. When they understood that and when they started to teach that, they realized that Christ had inaugurated His kingdom. The kingdom of God has come near because the King has come near. That's why Peter could say these were the last times when he said that in Acts 2.17 at Pentecost. Peter understood that they were in the final phase. The Messiah had come. He had died. He had ascended. He rose on high. Just as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, the end of the ages had come and had arrived. Therefore, they understood that the return of Christ, the culmination of all things, the end of all things, as Peter says in our text, were imminent. It just simply means at hand, about to happen at any time. They were near. They had come near. 
And so the return of Christ is imminent, as some people call it, because we are living in the last days or the end times, or the end of the ages. And Peter actually already said this in the epistle of 1 Peter. In chapter 1, verse 20, speaking of Christ, he said, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. And I think last times is referring to end times, not just a little bit ago. The last times, the end, the final phase. So the last times is speaking of the messianic age, the last phase of God's redemptive plan. This was inaugurated by the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And so while there is a final day, of course, there's a final decisive end to the world, at least as we know it, a final judgment, we are also at the same time living in the end times. The latter days, or the last times. Those different phrases are used in the New Testament. And this is why when the New Testament speaks of the end being at hand or ready to happen or has come near, it's obvious because we're already living in the end times, the latter times, the end of the ages. The end has already come near. This is what some theologians refer to the already not yet tension of the New Testament. Some people have different terms for it. But we're, we're already partakers of Christ in His promises. It's been inaugurated, but not yet consummated. The end has already come near, because Christ has already come the first time. But the end is not yet fully realized or consummated. Jesus is already King of kings and Lord of lords. But He's not yet vanquished all His enemies. We are already redeemed, saved in union and fellowship with Christ. We are in Christ, but not yet face to face with Christ. And so because of this, I really don't think Peter would be shocked that here we are 2,000 years later, and the end of all things hasn't actually happened. The end of all things being near has come near, past action with the present result, is true for Peter just as much as us because we're in the final phase of God's redemptive plan. All of us, New Covenant believers, are living in the last days brought in by Christ's resurrection and ascension. Christ has already crushed the serpent's head. He's cast him down. Christ has already been enthroned on high. He's already been seated at the right hand of power. He's already ruling and reigning over every authority in heaven and on earth. All the souls who have died in Christ have not, and they've not worshipped the beast, and, and they're with him already in his glorious kingdom. And so the consummation of these end times in which we live will be when He returns. Because it's not yet. It's already, but not yet. At that time, Christ will cast Satan into the lake of fire. Christ will cast death and Hades into the lake of fire. And then all these things that have been inaugurated with the coming of Christ will finally be consummated when He ushers us into His eternal kingdom. And so... According to the New Testament, we're already living in the end times. So if someone asks you, hey, do you think we're living in the end times? You can just say, yeah, of course, and move on. (laughs) Now, most people mean something different by that because of a certain theological perspective. But we've been living in the end times for 2,000 years because we're in the messianic age that's been inaugurated but not yet consummated. And so because the end of all things has come near, Peter exhorts us to live in a certain way, in a particular way, because we're a particular kind of people. 
And this is really Peter's main point after establishing that fact. His main point is that our theology or our eschatology, our study of the last times, really should 100% affect our practical living. If it doesn't, there's something wrong with your eschatology. And so the first exhortation then that we're going to look to is, he calls us to think rightly in verse 7. He says, Therefore, therefore because the end of all things is near, or has come near, be alert and of a sober mind so that you may pray. Now the first word that Peter uses there is to have a sound mind. The ESV translates it as be self-controlled. The New King James as be serious. The NIV as be alert. And so it's, it's contrasted with not thinking rightly in the head. One example is in Mark 5.15. There's a crowd who noticed that there was a guy who had been demon-possessed, but now he was sitting there in his right mind, most translations say. That's the same word here. The second term Peter uses here literally means to be sober and not drunk. And while he may have some kind of literal sense intended there, more than likely it's metaphorical. Have clear thinking. Be sober. Not all worked up in your thoughts. Be sober-minded. And so both these terms here are very similar in their meaning. We're not called to be drunk on the views and values of this world and all the things that distract our thinking away from prayer. We're not called to have muddled thinking that's preoccupied with so much junk in this world. We're called to be clear-minded. Have our minds cleaned up, renewed. And Peter gives us the reason for this. He says, so that. That's a reason clause there, a reason conjunction. So that you can pray, or for the sake of your prayers, some translations say. And so why does he say this? Because there's nothing more hindering to your prayer life than having muddled up thinking. Than having like a traffic jam in your mind with the views and values of the world by not being sober-minded. By not having a cleaned-up mind. This is something that I'm personally convicted with a lot. I mean, I I was thinking lately about different things that clog up my mind. The radio in my car just fills my head with trivial things, and yet for some reason I love it. I just always hit skip, skip, skip. Social media, Facebook, my goodness, occupies my mind. It clogs up my thinking. It wastes so much of my valuable time. My wants and my desires... Things I just want. Things I keep mulling over in my mind. right? And they're not always inherently evil. There's so many good things we can enjoy that God has given us. But so often, we put the emphasis on that and then we're not a praying people. We have a traffic jam in our brain. We have a roadblock to prayer and communion with the Lord. And so Peter's calling us to be sober direct, thoughtful, to have direct and thoughtful communication with the Lord. And frequently, we can't do this throughout the day because we all value so many little trivial pursuits throughout our life. And because our minds are filled with trivial things, often our prayers are too. Have you ever noticed that in the church at large? We value so many trivial little earthly things that often our prayers are about trivial little earthly things. And somehow we reduce God to being some kind of cosmic genie that can just fulfill us with all of our wants and desires. But He's not a cosmic genie. He's the Lord and Master. 
And so because the end is near, if we're going to live out Christ's victory in the church, we must first renew our minds and think rightly so that we can actually pray as the Lord taught us and intends us to pray. But we also must learn to love deeply. If you look at verse 8, Peter says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. So the NIV says love deeply. Other translations say fervently or intensely or earnestly. The word in the original literally means stretched out or extended. And so the idea is to have a love that's constantly stretched out, extended towards others. The love of the saints is always to be stretching in in breadth and depth towards one another in this communion we have with Christ and with one another. It's just like what Paul said in Ephesians 3. He said he wanted the Ephesians to know how wide and how long and how high and how deep the love of Christ is. Stretched out in all directions and that's what Peter wants for us. Our love to be extended and constant and stretched out because he says love covers a multitude of of sins. Now that little phrase has many different interpretations and most try to deal with whose love covers whose sins. And I don't want to get into that. Actually, I'd rather just think about it as a proverb. Proverbs are succinct sayings that teach a general truth. They're supposed to be short and they're supposed to make you ponder over them. Love covers a multitude of sins. You ponder over it. And this proverb, love covers over a multitude of sins, I think is actually a paraphrase from the Hebrew proverb of Proverbs 10.12. Proverbs 10.12 says, Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over or covers all transgression. Or another version, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. And so these two phrases are actually parallel in the proverb. They're what they call antithetical. They're opposites. So the meaning of the one sheds light on the other because it's like the opposite. They contrast. And so love is not stirring up dissension in Proverbs 10.12. But instead it's being patient with others. It's not letting wrongs done to you get you all stirred up. Stirring the pot is not loving. It's just like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love endures all things. So instead of Stirring up conflict and opposition, love endures conflict and opposition. I think we can apply this to our lives and situations we've been in or we know. Relationships, personal relationships, family relationships, relationships in the church. They start to get stirred up. There's conflict. And if conflict breeds more conflict, it's a downward spiral, right? It gets more heated. People start to separate. There's tension. It builds up. It keeps building and building. It's a snowball effect. It gets worse and worse and worse, right? So how do you stop this snowball effect? How do you stop this downward spiral of of, of conflict, stirring up conflict? How do you break the cycle of acting on hard feelings? Well, we know like breeds like. It's so obvious. Tit for tat. So hatred, anger, bitterness, self-vindication, all these things are only going to stir up more strife. So someone's got to do the opposite. Someone's got to love. 
Somebody who has been personally offended in the church or your family or whatever relationship, someone must show love in order to cover the sin. And that love here, it's obviously not a warm, fuzzy feeling, right? You don't always feel that feeling towards the person that you've got to love. No, love is 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. It's being patient and kind, not boasting. Being, not being proud, it means honoring the other person. Not being self-seeking, it means keeping no record of wrong. Instead, covering the sin. Erasing the sin by not returning in kind. Like for like. And that's how you end the conflict. That's how you end the downward spiral. Only a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love can put an end to that downward spiral of broken relationships or an evil act done to you. You know what's funny too? is like in our experience, we know that works. But it's so hard to do. We know that being loving towards, towards a person who's not loving often works. I mean, if you've been married for more than a day, especially you guys, you know that winning the argument at all costs is not really a victory. It's not nuptial bliss. It's not what you signed up for. But having a love that's patient and kind and not self-seeking and not proud... It works. It works because it's God's truth. And yet it's so hard to do. Because of that, many marriages and relationships and whole churches eventually split or disintegrate because of conflict and the lack of love towards one another. But if we're going to live out Christ's victory in the church, we have to love each other deeply. So we must think rightly Because the end of all things is near. We must love deeply. And thirdly, we must share cheerfully. In verse 9. The text says, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now many people in this this context understand hospitality to refer to letting traveling visitors, people come in from out of town, stay in your house. That's hospitable and that's often what the term means. And so you could understand the text in this way, but I actually think it's, it's much, much broader than that. And, and Peter says, offer hospitality to one another. So he's writing these dispersed Christians in, in the area, so it could refer to all of them, but also to local congregations. You as a congregation are to offer hospitality to one another, and that probably doesn't mean letting the person spend the night. So we need to understand that it could entail that, but also these churches didn't meet in church buildings like this or the one down the street. They usually met in homes. They met in wealthier people's homes because they had more space. And so, can you imagine hosting people from various backgrounds in your house week after week after week in your kitchen, in your living room, using all your chairs and your food, you'd be tempted to grumble. At least I would. Somebody's house would always be getting dirty. Someone would always have to put up the chairs. Someone would always be missing out on the message or the Bible reading because they're cooking food. And when you all live in the same small village, 
I mean, some of you probably drive a good distance to come here, but if you live in the same small village, now not all these towns were small, but if you did and you rub shoulders with people throughout the week, not just Sunday, but Monday through, through Sunday, it'd be very tempting to not be hospitable to people, especially without grumbling. There's no transportation. You can't pass other churches. You're there in the same town with these people and you really know them well. You'd be tempted to grumble. Grumble on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Grumble throughout the whole week. It's an old song. I don't know if you know that. But the Christian here is supposed to be open-hearted. And the open-hearted Christian is supposed to have an open home. I think this is really missing in our society. right? It's not the case for many Christians today. I think hospitality is like a, a forgotten virtue. I know I have to work at it. Because for us in the 21st century, our homes are kind of like our private sphere, right? They're like our little castles. I've heard people say that, like, this is my castle, it's my little refuge. And so we we build these imaginary moats around our little castles. We're not that inviting to outsiders. We meet people on Sunday morning only. We have superficial relationships, and yet we don't somehow dig into their life and invite them over for a cup of coffee or a meal or just a play or watch a movie hang out. But if you're living in a village, there's no trans- public you know, technological transportation like cars or whatever. Most people probably didn't own horses. They weren't wealthy enough. You, you're, your houses are side by side like an African village. People know each other. You've got to be hospitable to your neighbors. And Peter knows it's a challenge. So he says, without grumbling. And I think it's a real crucial element in building a close Christian community because it, pro- it promotes closeness. Being physically close to people, inviting them in your home, it forces you to open up your heart, forces you to open up your home. It forces you to get into their lives and their relationships, to pray for them, to know how to pray for them. And so today, hospitality must be very intentional. So if you want to live out Christ's victory in the church, you must share your homes cheerfully. You must do it without grumbling. And lastly, in verse 10 through 11, Peter exhorts us to serve faithfully. He says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do it as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. So Peter makes it very clear that spiritual gifts are for serving others. He doesn't make a list of spiritual gifts here like Paul does in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12, but he does divide them into two main categories. We can see speaking and serving, although speaking is a kind of serving, but he distinguishes the two. So those who speak, obviously teachers, preachers, people evangelizing, really anyone discipling, counseling, they should do it as if they were speaking the very words of God. Now he didn't say they were speaking the words of God. This isn't some kind of prophetic utterance. But he's talking about the weightiness, the severity, the the responsibility of representing God's word when you open your mouth. When you disciple other people, when you talk about Christ, when you preach or teach or whatever you do, 
Whoever speaks, it's not just the preacher or the teacher. It's you in your lives when you open up your mouth to testify, to bear witness for Christ. Whenever you do it, it's as if you're sharing the very words of God. And the speaker who does it to the believing community like this morning, he's got a message to share. It's the, 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 the importance of it, the severity of it. It's, so, it's serious business to get up in front of people and speak God's truths, to represent God's character and His truth rightfully, and to tell people how it applies to their life. But I think it's also very serious when you do it in your own personal lives, to your family, your friends, your neighbors. So Peter says all such speaking must be in accordance with what God has already revealed in His inscripturated Word. It shouldn't just be our speculations, our fascinations, or our hobby horses. But not everyone is necessarily involved in the ministry of the Word, at least formally. And so that's why Peter mentions those who serve here. So whatever their service is, he doesn't make a list of different kinds of services. The person doing it needs to rely on God's strength. And he says, why? He says, so that in all things God would be praised through Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter if your service goes unnoticed. It doesn't matter if it's something as simple as like folding the bulletins. Everyone who serves the believing community must do it as if they're serving Christ Himself. So that in all things God would be praised through Jesus Christ. So our serving, our speaking, and our serving must lead to praise. Doxology. It must lead us to say, just as Peter says in verse 11, his concluding statement here, he says, to Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. And so living out Christ's victory in the church should transform us into a praising kind of people, not a grumbling kind of people, a doxological kind of people. That's our ultimate mission as a church, as the church to glorify God in whatever we say or do, words or service, and obviously to enjoy Him forever. And to enjoy our brother and sister in Christ. And so to wrap up and summarize, we must realize that because the end of all things is near, we must live out Christ's victory in the church by thinking rightly, by loving deeply, by sharing cheerfully, and by serving faithfully. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this Word. Though it seems so simple to think rightly, love deeply, share cheerfully, and serve faithfully, I think we all know, if we're being honest, that it's challenging. And so I pray You would work in us to make us more like Christ, transform our thoughts, our words, our deeds, that we may honor You by serving You in truth and in grace. We thank You for Christ. It's in His name that I pray. Amen.